We're continuing in the book of Romans. We are essentially, you know, we've, we've read through chapter 12 and 13, the first few verses, a few times already. For the sake of time, I'm going to uh, begin to jump in. The important thing to remember is that there's a list of the law in Romans 13. And so what we have, and this would be essentially, this is the text for today, so please actually forgive me, please stand one more time. This is a very, very brief standing. Here is the word that we're preaching from. Okay, so the, the word is, you shall not commit adultery. So please be seated. That's the text. It's quoted in Romans 13, and that is the seventh commandment. And so, from that, what we're doing is drawing out that as a head of doctrine. And so, if you have the outline, the Westminster Confession, sorry, the Westminster Larger Catechism has drawn out for us an excellent, an excellent explanation of that. So, we have this doctrine of the Seventh Commandment. So, the question from the Larger Catechism 137 is, which is the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. That's from Exodus 20, verse 14. So again, that's quoted in, in Romans 13. But what I want to remind you, I have three points down there. Like every one of the Ten Commandments, this commandment is a head of doctrine. It represents the duty to exercise self-rule to avoid the immoderate use of pleasures by excess and ingratitude and hedonism or deprivation and ingratitude in asceticism. There are two great sins as regards pleasure. Making sin the good and making sin, sorry, making not sin, sorry, making pleasure the good. There are two great sins about pleasure. Making pleasure the good or making pleasure by definition evil or making the avoidance of it a good work, which implies that it is evil. So asceticism is not popular in our age, but I'll tell you what, it is on the rise. Here's how it's on the rise. There is an obsession with workout routines and diets as things that can give immortality or close to it. There, you, you, you may be familiar with the transhumanism movement, this idea of, of trying to make it so that there's this ability to transfer consciousness into perhaps an electronic sphere. Um, the idea that if we are just matter and energy, then why can't we take the energy or matter that forms our minds, because the mind is just matter, not a spirit, not a soul, it's not immaterial. That's the idea. It's a false doctrine. But if the mind is just energy and matter, then what we can do is transfer that into a different energy and matter form. And it doesn't really matter that it's not exactly the same as long as it functions similarly, since if there is no soul, what is the real connectivity between you from five years ago to you today? You know, every seven years, your body is replaced entirely. Every cell is replaced. So are you really even the same person if all there is is matter? Is, is there any way of saying that, that there's the same person there? And frankly, you know, halfway through that, if half of your cells have been replaced, are you really the same person? If all there is is matter. So the idea of the continuation of the person becomes far less relevant than the idea of 
some sort of similitude. So humanists, people who have focused on man, have to some extent always sought ways of immortality that don't necessarily depend upon the individual's mind continuing, uh, having a dynasty, a thousand year reign, something like that. Those are the kinds of things that people do to create a sort of immortality, building buildings and artifacts that will outlive them, pieces of art. Right. So when you're pursuing self-glory, you, there's this pursuit of things to make it so that you can live on and your glory can go on when you make yourself God. So the idea of trying to have the perfect diet, have the perfect exercise regimen, have some way of extending your consciousness on beyond or something that's similar to it. This is, this is a sort of trend of thought that is popular in Silicon Valley and amongst the godless who are trying to find a way to extend their lives. And you can find all sorts of um, wild treatments that are popularized that are, you can look for on the internet. And so there's a, a rise there. And there's this, historically, asceticism, the avoidance of pleasure or viewing pleasure as somehow destructive is associated frequently with sort of rising up of, of a sort of new chauvinism in lots of ways. You'll have like warriors saying that pleasure-seeking weakens your vitality for battle. Um, you'll have claims like that. So the idea that you can somehow gain power or long life through avoiding pleasure or some sort of spirituality. And so uh, these, these claims of asceticism, you know, hedonism has so thoroughly saturated the culture and is so obviously disappointing that I expect to see a rebound within our own reasonable lifetimes of an increasing presence of asceticism. Asceticism is never as popular as hedonism. It's never as popular, even in the highest times of asceticism, because men are naturally drawn to pleasure-seeking. Naivete is the condition that we are born into, right? We are simple, we are ineffective at differentiating between good and evil, and so what happens is we are drawn to the things that are pleasing. So the naive are always the dominant portion of the culture, but the power portions of the culture tend to be more complex than the naive. And so those that are powerful, who have a strong cultural influence, can become significantly focused on asceticism. And tech billionaires are relatively powerful. And so you could see how there might be a strengthening of support for a sort of asceticism. So these are things to be watched out for. So the principal thing to preach about, however, is hedonism, because it is the problem for those who are in the church that are newer to the faith, typically. And so that's going to be the thing that I focus on, but we need to be aware of both. Seeking pleasure as the good, hedonism, is ungrateful because rather than looking to God as the good and his gifts as good gifts that we should be grateful for, we look for those things as the good. We seek to fill our lives with pleasure. Asceticism is also ingratitude. As opposed to gratefully using the lawful pleasures that God has given to us, we reject them. So monks in the Middle Ages sometimes would intentionally beat themselves as a way of trying to build discipline or in the most horrific of superstitions, pay for their own sins. Other times, you would have the presence of a bed and the intentional choice to sleep on the ground next to the bed because the 
less comfortable sleeping on the ground would be somehow viewed as either building discipline or as somehow paying for sins. Now you can put yourself through training routines, but those training routines are not the normal condition of your life. Those training routines are a temporary thing to help to develop some skill. And so I'm not saying that putting yourself through difficulties, I'm not saying that exercise, I'm not saying that the moderate use of food is somehow a violation of the Seventh Commandment. Those things are required in the Seventh Commandment. The issue is, how do we think about them? Do we think of the avoidance of pleasure as somehow giving us strength or power and view the lawful use of pleasures as sin? Do we view pleasure as the good? These are the things to avoid. So the breaking down of the law helps us to see this in more detail. Secondly, pleasures ought to be used lawfully with faith, with gratitude, and for the goal. So the goal is the glory of God. We ought to seek to glorify God. We can use pleasures for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That doesn't mean that everything can be done to the glory of God. That means the things that you do ought to be done with the goal in mind. A conscious effort to use everything at every moment for the glory of God. When you see that that's what we're called to, that every thought ought to have the consciousness of God in it, and the use of means to accomplish the goal of displaying His glory, that helps you to see the depth of your own depravity, that the moments of forgetfulness, the lack of faith, the other goals, the failing to relate goals to the ultimate goal, that those things, that that reveals to us the degree to which we have neglected the glory of God. So we are to have the goal in mind. We are to always be grateful for the gifts that we use. We are to always use them in faith. And what does that mean? Doing it in faith doesn't mean just feeling okay about it. Doing it in faith, hopefully this, this answer has come to your mind. It's bubble to the surface. You're sitting there. You're going, this answer is obvious, David. The answer is, if it's in faith, you can demonstrate it from Scripture. If it's in faith, you can demonstrate it from Scripture. If it's in faith, you can demonstrate it from scripture and so to be able to show that this is something that's been revealed by God that is good that you can do it in faith and so that is sort of a redundancy with the idea of being used lawfully if you can do it in faith it means you can show that it's lawful then gratitude is your subjective issue and then the goal so is it objectively in the law? Do you know how to show it's in the law? Are you grateful for it? Are you doing it for the glory of God? Everything we ever enjoy ought to be used in that way. And if your mind were formed to always do that, then you would be in the glorified state, friend. And so that will never perfectly be the case until we pass from our current condition of corruption. So the third major point Pleasures ought not to be rejected superstitiously as evil or pursued as though they were the good. So we need to consider the right use of pleasures and we need to pursue God as the good and view pleasures as helps from God in their rightful use. So, what are the duties required in the Seventh Commandment? The duties required in the Seventh Commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, 
words, and behavior. The preservation of chastity in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company. Modesty in apparel. Marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. Conjugal love and cohabitation. Diligent labor in our callings. Shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. Now, if there were some words there that you wished you had definitions for, don't worry, they're coming. So, let's go through that. Alright, so, the first thing we're called to is chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. So, what's chastity? Well, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is a fantastic dictionary, and is available for free online, and you can see at the bottom there, it's Webster, Webster's Dictionary, 1828.com. Okay, so, these are the, all the definitions I'm using today come from there, or I made them up. My favorite ones are the ones I made up. All right. Now, chastity. Chastity is a noun, right? It's a thing. It's a quality to be possessed. And so there are multiple definitions. And I thought two of them were useful out of Webster's Dictionary. And so here we go. First one, the, the purity of the body. Chastity involves the purity of the body. So that would be sort of chastity in body, right? Purity of the body. So what's purity of the body? What's well, the use of the body? in the seeking of lawful pleasures in faith with gratitude for the glory of God. That's how you use your body in purity. It's freedom from all unlawful commerce of sexes. So that's an old way of saying not having sexual relations outside of marriage. Before marriage, purity from all commerce of sexes. In other words, purity from all sexual engagement. And after marriage, fidelity to the marriage bed. So giving yourself sexually only to your spouse. Two, freedom from obscenity, as in language or conversation. Now, conversation in older documents, like Webster's 1828 or in the Westminster Standards, typically refers to behavior. Okay? So conversation, we, we've come to use conversation to mean what you're talking about. Conversation used to mean kind of what you're doing. Okay? So the idea that you're avoiding obscenity in your language and you're also avoiding obscenity in your behavior, okay, the ha- how you carry yourself. So here are proof texts for each of these. All right, so in the body, 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So your body, how can you possess your own body in such a way that's holy and honorable? The mind, Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? The idea of being careful about your thoughts and not putting things before your eyes that would cause you to think in a way that is unlawful or impure. And so the, the body, you, you, you're using the body properly, and the mind you are using in such a way as to think upon those things that are not going to encourage lust, but instead going to encourage proper attitudes, proper affections. And that's the next point, affections. What's an affection? An affection is the thing that you value. You you value things. Your affections have to do with the valuation system inside of your mind. Think about the things you spend money on. Think about the things you spend time on. Those are valuable signs of what you value Okay, what you spend your time and money on helps to show you what you're valuing. And so, 
if you find that you are spending your time and money on things that are not profitable, you wonder, you need to identify what are the affections that I have that are causing me to be wasteful in time and money. Now, if you are particularly drawn to pleasures, whether it's food or drug use or sexuality, those affections, that's showing you that you have some method of pleasure, pleasure-seeking, that you think is most effective for you or most you know, pure in terms of avoiding displeasure. Um, I don't mean pure morally. I mean the things that you have, in your own judgment, you've determined, this one gives me the most pleasure with the least mixture of pain. Right? And we all kind of make those assessments about things. And so if you've made pleasure something that you overvalue, then you're going to have affections for the means that get you that pleasure with less pain. And so the idea of, of looking in yourself for those things, and when you've identified the things that you overvalue, you've identified your idols, your false gods. And when you've identified false gods, the important thing to do is to tear them down. Now the problem with the mind is ropes and hooks and battering rams are ineffective at destroying false thoughts. And so you need something else to tear down the things that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. What you need is the word of God, argumentation, reasoning, to tear down the things that you overvalue. And so you consider, how are these things not a good? How is this not ultimately satisfying? How is this not lasting? How does this displace things that are better? How is God better than this thing? And by degrees, as you've torn down the high places in your own mind, you find it easier to elevate the God of Scripture. Now, it's interesting. Different stations in life affect our affections. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34 says, There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now, is that true of every unmarried woman? Is every unmarried woman just like, I'm, all, I'm totally in, I'm on board, I'm just thinking about God all the time, definitely not concerned about other things? Right? No. But the idea would be that if you were morally pure, then you could focus yourself on God. But marriage is something that is designed first, actually, for the state of man's innocency, for the sake of man being able to have a companion, male and female both, to have a companion of each other, to work together. And then secondly, to be able to have godly seed, have godly children, to multiply, fill the earth. But in the fallen state, that idea that, well, you could work by yourself and focus in a more, in a more focused way on the Lord becomes even less commonly useful to think about because we have to deal with the problem of sexual desire. And if we're not married, the problem of sexual desire can be something that leads us into great sin. And so the idea that if you were not fallen or if you had much control over your sexual desire, then you could find how sometimes it would be better to be unmarried because you could focus yourself. But because of sexual sin, we're told down the line in 1 Corinthians, the importance of having a spouse 
to be able to have a lawful way of seeking sexual gratification. And here's the other thing. When we're talking as Christians about marriage sometimes, we make it sound like, okay, well, sex and marriage is sort of okay, that's fine. You know, it's not that. It's glorious, it's great, it's good, it's wonderful, it's for the honor of God, it is a good thing, it signifies the union between Christ and his church, it is a thing to be enjoyed and gloried in. The Song of Solomon is about the glories of married love. Puritanism blew away the lies of medieval monasticism that said that having a wife is somehow destructive of manhood. It is not. For most men and for most women, having a spouse makes it so that you can more effectively perform, that you can do things in life better. You can divide up labor and build a house. And the intimacies of marriage are an expression of the beauty of that and are an interlocking and powerful tool to build union. So we need not look upon the married state as inferior it is the design for the vast majority of mankind. People often point to the singleness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the reality of marriage. He is married to the church, or soon will be. He is betrothed. And so this idea of the single life being something that is superior is not true. But here's the other thing. The single life is not inferior for those who are called to it. What is inferior is for you, if you are called to one or the other, to remain in the one you are not called to. Now, sometimes people have a desire for one that they are unable to obtain. And so, the use of lawful means and prayer are the ways of trying to advance that cause. For men, the display of competence and piety and building up an estate to have means to provide. For women, the display of beauty and piety and trying to be useful for the management of an estate displayed in the home of the Father. These are the things that help to pursue marriage. And fathers and mothers are called to look for and support the formation of godly marriage alliances. And it requires the consent of both the parents and the children for the marriage to occur in most cases. There are exceptions that I don't have time to go into. So, chastity in body, mind, affections, words, behavior. With words, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other. Behavior. Well, there's a commendation of wives giving chaste conduct as a way of showing their husbands when they are in disobedience that they ought to do what is good. So there's a commendation there of chaste conduct. And that word for chaste is really holy there, but it's a translation that communicates still that truth, which is embedded in it. So this idea of chaste behavior, so chaste in body, mind, affections, words, behavior, it's a guarding of ourselves and others from temptation to the immoderate use of pleasures. Okay, so that means, and we think of sexuality because that's the, that's the kind of pinnacle of the abuse of pleasure is to have unlawful sexual enjoyment. Okay, but remember, this also points to foods, luxuriating, drunkenness, drug use, 
So body, mind, affections, words, behavior, properly ordered to not unlawfully use those things. There's a lawful use for all of those things. Drugs have a lawful use. You have probably been blessed immensely by the lawful use of drugs to prevent some sort of medical problem or to help you with pain in a situation where it was best to have your mind not at top function during some procedure. And so the idea of there being a lawful use for those things, the enjoyment of alcohol in moderation is commended in the scriptures. Drunkenness is always condemned. The enjoyment of things and the discussion of things with friends and the pointing out of the blessings of things, commending each other, praising each other, is enjoyable conversation that can build relationship. But when used for flattery and the building of a sense of relationship to manipulate is a sort of unchastity. Right? That sort of misuse of those things. So, there are degrees. There are more grievous things. If you want to know the most grievous things, just simply turn on television or the radio. The most horrendous sorts of immodesty are expressed in absurd ways all across the land. I would dare to say that if you turn on some sort of radio station with songs that have lyrics on it, I would bet you 80% of the time those songs are going to have examples of ridiculous immodesty and unchastity. That is, that is the saturation of adultery, fornication, immodesty, unchastity in our culture. So the preservation of chastity in others is a part of our calling and the preservation of it in ourselves. And so we need to think about how do we do that? How do we preserve chastity in ourselves and in others? Well, one of the key things is the watchfulness over the eyes and all of the senses. And all the rest of the things that follow below here are essentially going to be explanations of how to do that. So a watchfulness over the eyes and over all the senses involves you guarding your senses. There's a book by John Bunyan called Man's Soul, or the, it's the Holy, Holy War. It's called Holy War, and it's about the effort of Satan to conquer the city of man's soul and then the liberation of it by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the premise of the book. He's not very subtle. Uh, the gates of the city are the eye gate, the ear gate, right? The various senses. So the, the way he lays things out, he's talking about this idea of you have to guard your eyes. And so, you know, you just going around in life, there's... You know, there are not a lot of fully dressed people. Right? Fully dressed people are the exception. And so this idea that there's a, an absence of a sense of modesty. Right? People used to put on suits to go to the store. That's, that's not what people wear to the store now. And so this idea of a failure to prevent others from stumbling... We have to be particularly watchful over our own eyes and over what we hear. And the thing is, if you hear things, if you hear about things that you already know about, you're obviously reminded of certain types of sexual sin or wickedness, 
if you hear about things you don't know about, it creates a curiosity. And so with children, the goal is to protect their innocence and to keep them away from those things. And the dangers of being able to easily access information or to find things about it that would be destructive to the soul is something that we have to be careful about with guarding children, but also with ourselves. So a watchfulness over the senses. So some of the particular examples that have to be dealt with there, temperance. Temperance is the moderate use of alcohol. It's not not drinking. That's abstinence of alcohol. Temperance. Temperance is the moderate use of alcohol. The moderate use of alcohol is not drinking so little alcohol that you cannot feel anything at all. It cheers the heart is the, one of the blessings of alcohol. Okay, so if you don't have any sort of boosting of mood, then you obviously aren't getting one of the blessings that's supposedly supposed to come from that. On the other side, if you are not thinking clearly, you are clearly having too much of it. Now, alcohol used to be used, drunkenness used to be used some for medical use. You could give people too much alcohol because there were not other things that would help people to kind of be away from consciousness. We have better things now, right? If you're in some situation where you're in a post-apocalyptic world and you've got to deal with, you know, amputating somebody and you get them drunk, that's okay. But hopefully you won't have to deal with that, okay? So the, the use of alcohol for ordinary life involves being able to know your limits. Now, you don't have to pass your limits to know them. You start to approach them, and you worry about passing them. So if you begin to feel the effects, stop. Okay, so the moderate use of alcohol involves even enjoying the blessing of feeling the lifting of mood that comes from it. The danger is that's a very enjoyable state and the desire to elongate it or the desire to be in it at times that is too often and the danger of building up resiliency. Right? So, so this idea, this is for times of feasting. In times of feasting, we're not talking about all feasts because the Lord's Supper is a type of feast and the goal is not to have the effects of the physical alcohol in the Lord's Supper. The goal is to instead use it as a symbol for the nourishing of the soul. Okay, so, but that's the idea, that there are times that are fit for feasting and the enjoyment of those physical blessings. Picking the right times. One of the curses that falls onto a land is when the princes feast in the daytime. If you're in authority and you use your authority to try to feast at times when you ought to be doing work, right, there's, a, there's a curse. So, you don't, temperance involves not using these pleasures in such a way that prevents you from doing effective work. So keeping chaste company. Remember, good company will help you to grow wise. Bad company will corrupt your morals. And so if you keep chaste company, you'll be encouraged for the right use of pleasures. What does it mean to be chaste? To be, one, pure from all unlawful commerce of sexes. Applied to persons before marriage it signifies pure from all sexual commerce, undefiled. Applied to married persons, true to the marriage bed. See how similar that is to chastity up above? Free from obscenity. And so then there's, some, there's a quote. One of the wonderful things about the 1828 is oftentimes the usage comes from the King James Bible. Here's an example. And 
while they behold your chaste conversation. That's the part of First Peter that I quoted above. Now, the other idea here is being chaste is being in language pure and genuine, uncorrupt, free from barbarous words and phrases, and from quaint, affected, and extravagant expressions. So, the the idea of trying to intentionally be quirky and drawing attention to yourself is a sort of way of being immodest, right? This idea of drawing attention in, and then it can be used as a way of trying to increase what you're able to do to draw people in. So, how do you avoid the misuse of those things? Everybody has things that are you know, unique to them. The being unique is not something that is sinful. But the idea of taking on intentional affectation in order to draw attention to yourself would be a sort of immodesty. Okay? So, we're going, these are details. There are more extravagant ways. Our, our world is filled with, okay, how can I draw attention to myself? I will wear very bright colors on the limited amount of clothing I am wearing, right? That's one example. Or I will seek to get in front of everybody and just be a clown, right? For, for men, there's the display of power on some sort of sport. There's the uh, display of comedy in front of people. Um, there's the effort to try to be like, look at me, look how much I do, hustle culture on, you know, social media or whatever, where you're just like, look how effective I am, look how much I'm getting done, I'm a modicum of power, right? That, those, those displays are different ways of trying to draw attention to the self and can be used to sort of encourage other people to become obsessed with you. Think about celebrity culture. Celebrity culture is the intentional drawing of people's interest to a person and to try to get them to be inordinately interested in them in order to use the attention of other people to make money off of it. Okay, so, so this, if you can get people to pay too much attention to you, you can monetize that. And so this, this sort of effort to cause infatuation, right? Boy bands are the economy of female infatuation. So that idea of the keeping of chaste company those whom you spend time with and the things you look to as your examples of how to behave. Modesty in apparel is required. And I don't have the text here right now, um, but we are told in Exodus that, for example, the priests were required to wear trousers, and the reason they were required to wear trousers was to cover the thigh, and the covering of the thigh was required because even though they had tunics that would go down and would cover the thigh, the danger was that they had to walk upstairs sometimes in order to sacrifice. And when they were walking upstairs in that limited circumstance, then they could be exposed, and therefore they were required to wear trousers that cover the thigh. That's the argument in Exodus there, is this concern about that. So if you are thinking about, if you have expectation of of how you're going to move, right? The clothing you wear when you have to lift things to do work is going to be different from the clothing you might wear when you're going around in ordinary life. The activity you've got to deal with is going to help to control what kind of clothing you're going to wear. And men and women both are required to cover the thigh and up to the top of the breast. And so the idea of covering the body between the knee and the clavicle is the way of covering our nakedness. And so modest apparel involves that. Modest apparel also involves not being overly luxuriant or attention-getting, right? And so 
that idea of trying to not, you're not trying to make yourself ugly. That would be asceticism. You're trying to be modestly beautiful. Have your form properly displayed where you're not trying to show off the intimate shape of the body and you're not trying to reveal skin in the areas that ought to be covered, but rather you are trying to comport yourself as the image of God. You are, so, you are trying to honor the Lord with how you are attired. And so drawing attention to the face helps people to deal with you as a person. And so this idea of, of caring about and interacting with people as rational beings, modest apparel is going to be good looking without a revealing of what ought to be revealed and without being attention-getting in a way that is immodest. And that part is difficult to explain. I don't have a great definition for it. Um, I, I would suggest that there are things that all of us know would be examples of that sort of attention-getting um, and trying to define which things are sufficiently subdued is harder. I don't have a biblical definition for it right now. But I know the categories there. And so what that is, is me being ignorant. And so maybe somebody can help me to figure out a biblical definition of the things that are properly subdued and yet good looking. So I would suggest to you the scriptures are sufficient and have that instruction for us. So the question is, what exactly is that definition? Um, one of the things that we know is if you if a woman were to come to church with her hair filled with uh, jewels and gold, that was an example of something that was condemned in opposition to the covering of the head, right? Th those are, that's a, an example of the sort of thing that happened in the ancient church that was condemned. Now, these are all ways of guarding the senses. Temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those who do not have the gift of continence, We're talking about the importance of pursuing marriage, conjugal love in marriage. All right, so it is the duty of those who are married to give to each other their bodies. The enjoyment of the nakedness of the spouse and of the body in sexual activity, that is the right of the other spouse. It is your right as a, as a spouse over your spouse. And so in general... The sharing of the body and nakedness with the spouse at the request of the other, except in cases that are explained in Scripture. For example, if somebody is sick, you're caring for them, if there's a time that's been devoted to prayer and fasting. So we have these kinds of examples of where there are times that are not, there's not a requirement. And so those are the kinds of, that's a duty in marriage. And it's a pleasure in marriage. And the idea there is to help with the sexual desire of the other. And also for the idea of having children. And so the preventing of the conception of children in marriage when one spouse wants to have more children is a, you know, keeping away from your spouse will be a way of preventing that. And now we have other technologies. But the idea of trying to prevent sexual activity in marriage when the other spouse wants it or preventing having children when the other spouse wants it 
is the sort of thing that is the concern here. Now, cohabitation with this spouse in marriage is a requirement. Cohabitation doesn't mean literally just being in the same house. It's householding together. Householding together. Um, I have talked about the idea of householding a lot. You know, how do you work together as in a household? And that involves the roles of being master and mistress, husband and wife, father and mother in the same household, in coordination with your spouse, and in the lawful ordering of things. So I encourage you to read William Perkins' excellent work, Christian Economy, a short survey of the right manner of erecting and ordering a family according to Scripture. There's a Puritan title. So that book is great. It does an excellent job of laying those things out to cohabitation looks like. So a part of cohabitation, and notice cohabitation is a part of guarding the senses, by the way. Cohabitation is working together in your roles, which involves laboring in your callings, and we ought to be diligent in our callings, and being diligent in our callings helps us to avoid falling into adultery, gluttony, drunkenness. When people are bored, they tend towards pleasure-seeking. When you are diligently pursuing your work, you don't have time to be bored. If you're diligently pursuing your work, you don't have time to be bored. There's too much to do. There's too much fruit to be gained. And so part of marriage is the companionship. That's the first thing. The first thing in marriage, what is marriage about? It's about the companionship together. Companionship isn't just being around each other. Companionship is fellowship. It's working towards a goal together. It's a friendship Knowing the goal and pursuing it together. Seeking each other's good. This idea of diligent labor in our callings. And so, the Proverbs 31 text is an example of a wife who's diligently laboring her callings. And, man, if we're looking for the example of diligent labor, there are many godly men, but there's a laying out of principles and the qualifications of an elder pursuing the display of those qualifications is the way of showing that diligence in labor. So the diligent pursuit of our labor. There's a trend that I keep seeing things about, this idea of quiet quitting at work. Anybody seen anything about that online, this idea of quiet quitting? People are saying, quiet quitting. It's just known as being lazy as an employee. Okay, Quiet quitting. It's a nice way of trying to make the sin not sound as bad. Quiet quitting is supposed to be this idea that I'm not going to try that hard at my work. I'm going to limit myself. This is principally about sort of salaried employees. Okay, because salaried employees, you go, well, I'm being paid a salary. That means I should really put in 40 hours, and I really shouldn't volunteer for extra things and, and whatever. And here's the funny thing. When you try really carefully to not go over 40 hours, what tends to happen is you end up being really careful to not hit 40 hours. That's <laughs> what happens. And, and this danger of saying, Oh, yes, if I can just give the minimum and get the maximum for that minimum, that is not the way to wealth. That is not the way to prosperity. That is not the way to the well-ordering of the soul. The well-ordering of the soul comes from the diligent pursuit of labor. Now, you might get tired of a job, and you might think you're not getting paid enough. Okay, so there are lots of jobs. And at the same time, there is lots of opportunity to create your own jobs, to create your own businesses, to be able to generate wealth. 
right? There's, there's always a, a plethora of opportunity. There's an infinite amount of work that needs to be done. And there are many things that people would pay a high price for that are not being offered. Diligent labor and callings makes it so that rather than quiet quitting, rather than this idea of keeping a job but choosing to carefully avoid trying too hard is a thing that is contrary to this and that will make room for idleness and will make it so that what you do is you end up filling the time with unprofitable things. So, diligence in our labor. Shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting all temptations to uncleanness. So we think about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us, we, we, we pray, uh, it is not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right. So we're praying to not be led into temptation, and we should be careful to avoid sources of temptation. Shun them. And then, resisting all temptations to uncleanness. When we find ourselves in a situation where we're around a temptation, we then have to resist it and ask for God to give us power to overcome it. So this is, the, this is all stuff that helps us to give our focus to God. And so the lawful use of pleasures versus the sinful use of pleasures or the sinful rejecting of lawful pleasures. Now on the negative side of this commandment, there are many sins. And what I want to do is I'm gonna, we're not going to have a second sermon on this. I've given you a lot of notes about these things. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to point out a couple of things about it uh, to make sure you can understand it. So 139 on page 5. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, right? So all the positive things we just read about, neglecting that would be sin. Are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, okay? So adultery is very specifically sexual behavior when you're married with someone other than your spouse or sexual behavior with somebody else who is married but not to you. Fornication is sexual behavior between two unmarried persons. That is forbidden. Rape is sexual behavior that is coerced by one party against another. Rape is a capital crime. Adultery is a capital crime. Incest. Incest has degrees. I have on this outline for you the key text out of Leviticus that lists all the degrees that are forbidden. Some degrees of incest are capital crimes. Sodomy, which is sexual behavior between two men, is a capital crime. All unnatural lusts, that would include any other not commanded sexual activity. Okay, this, this idea of outside of the marriage bed, outside of between those who are married, the desire for sexual gratification with someone other than your spouse or something other than your spouse. And so one of the examples that is given in the scriptures, it's another capital crime, is bestiality, sexual behavior with an animal. That is a capital crime. These kinds of uncleanness occur in our own country without consequence. Fornication is something where in the Bible the man becomes responsible 
for caring for the woman and potential children, and if the woman and the father desire, he is required to marry and has no right of divorce even if she breaks the covenant. That is the civil penalty for fornication for a man, the responsibility of taking on that wife and having to provide. The father can refuse. That is the civil order that protects marriage properly. And those are all viewed as things that are considered ridiculous. They're considered laughable. We are not wiser than God. Our culture has stupidly and ignorantly, in a beast-like way, rejected the reality of the importance of the intimacy of the sexual relationship. All unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. So we need to avoid thinking about or making images or and we need to guard our eyes from seeing things we ought not to see, things that are unclean, sexually unclean. Uh, to think about those things. Don't go looking for things unnecessarily that will um, put thoughts. You know, the reading of, of, of materials. There, there are books that are full of filth. You can read sexual filth. Okay? Romance novels are the porn of words. Images that are of nakedness or of sexual activity or videos are a destruction of the soul. And for men, and now increasingly, sadly, also women, there is a destruction of the soul that occurs with pornographic material. It trains you to wicked desires and lusts, and it destroys the bounds that ought to have our affections. We need to avoid pursuing other people with purposes of wickedness in our hearts. And we need to avoid affections, building a value. When we find ourselves desiring unnatural lusts. And unnatural lusts, by the way, doesn't mean doesn't occur in nature. Okay? Unnatural lusts are things that are contrary to the design. It's not according to the nature of man, the design of man. So we're not talking about what we can see experientially out into the world or what happens amongst animals. We're talking about the design of man, which God has revealed, and his law lays bare our design. So unnatural lusts are lusts that are contrary to the design of man. Corrupt and filthy communications. We need to be careful about the words that we say. We need to be careful about what we communicate to other people, but also what we listen to. And there are so many movies, there are so many audio things that, that have corrupt communications in them. Wanton looks. Wanton looks are looks without... You know, without you're loose looking, it's it's looking without having a purpose. The guarding of the eyes. One of the ways that you can train to not look at things unnecessarily is by having things that are not sinful to look at that you train yourself to not look at. So one of the things I heard Pastor Phil Kaiser talk about was you know men are really drawn to looking at aircraft and looking at cars that are well designed, good looking buildings, stuff like that. And so if you you can use images of those kinds of things. And you can use them to train yourself to not look, to control yourself. Because who here is not drawn to look at a glorious-looking car? Probably the women. I don't know. <laughs> so, but that idea of using things that are not sinful to look at to train yourself to control your eyes. It's not wrong to look at those things, but they can be used as training mechanisms. Okay? So... Um, Impudent or light behavior. Um, impudent behavior is uh, 
shameless. It's lacking modesty. Um, it's a disregard for the opinions of others. So if you, there's a, there's a famous book by Jane Austen called Sense and Sensibility. And one of the characters is very concerned about the reality of, of having good intention as opposed to the appearance of it. And so she mocks, she mocks custom. She mocks the customs that are used to protect chastity. She goes, well, I don't care about that. Chastity matters, but these things don't really matter. So she puts herself in a situation where she's with a young man that she's romantically involved with and they're away from other people and it harms her reputation. Okay? This idea that you think, well, I care. I'm going to maintain sexual purity, but I don't care about these situations that look inappropriate. That would be impudence. And it causes the appearance of sin. It harms reputation. And it creates situations where there's temptation. Okay, so impudence. Now, um, light behavior would be um, being easy to influence or being sort of wanton. Like, you know, the sort of the silliness, the general silliness. And that encourages not, not holy type of behavior. Um, immodest apparel. We've already talked about the definition of nakedness and modesty. So the idea of apparel, it's immodest. The prohibit, prohibiting of lawful or dispensing with unlawful marriages. So the Bible lays out what kinds of marriages are lawful. Look, you ought to marry someone who is not too closely related and who is a believer and who is of the opposite sex. Those are the minimum requirements. Our world seems to think those are overly restrictive. I think that they are silly to think so. So, there are better and worse opportunities inside of that set. But those are the minimum requirements. Allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews and resorting to them. Stews refer to bathhouses. It's a slang term for it. This is one of the few examples of slang in the Westminster Standards. A stew is a bathhouse. Bathhouses were known as dens of prostitution. You could think about today, you talk about the idea of a massage parlor and that they're known as dens of prostitution. This would be sort of referring to that. Okay, So the idea here is that there's no allowing, so you can't grant permission for it under your authority. You can't tolerate it. In fact, you need to criminally punish it. Uh, one of the things that Hezekiah and Josiah did is they chased the dens of prostitution out of the land. Keeping them, having them under your, your you know, receiving you know, revenues from them, uh, resorting to them, using them. These are all sin. All right. The entangling vows of single life. You know, you should, if you've sworn to remain single and you are not called to singleness, guess what? That vow is not obligatory. It was sin. So you're free. Um, the undue delay of marriage. Look, you find somebody who wants to marry you and you want to get married and you found out each other's, each other's, each other's character is good, get married fast. Long engagements are a trap. Okay, get, you get married quickly. And also, when you, but at the same time, there ought to be a courtship stage where you are intelligently, carefully, and slowly testing. And that's essentially friendship with the intention of pursuing marriage. And so, there ought to be both the involvement of parents and children. As people get older, then they can be less guarded in that, but that's the idea. So undue delay of marriage. We should seek out, parents, we ought to help to seek out spouses for our children before they have had a long time of being adults and being single. Uh, it is a danger relieving them to be harmed and to have sexual temptation. Having more wives and husbands than one at the same time, sin. It's a form of adultery. 
unjust divorce is a violation of the seventh commandment. Divorce is only permissible if there is sexual uncleanness or if there is an abandonment of the covenant duties. And so, unjust divorce or desertion are violations of the seventh commandment when you are divorcing or deserting your spouse unjustly. Idleness, gluttony, and drunkenness. I have notes about those, and I wish I had more time to talk about them, but I am over time. Thank you for your patience. Um, the idea of idleness, you know, not having profitable work to do. If you're not doing something profitable, you're idle. Or worse, you're just sinning in a way that's more direct. Every single second of your life ought to be spent doing a good work. Sleep counts as a good work if you're not sleeping too much. Idleness, gluttony, gluttony, the immoderate use of foods. Drunkenness, the immoderate use of drink. Having unchaste company. Look, if you've got to deal with people who are unchaste, Jesus dealt with prostitutes, right? Did he meet with them and have private meetings? No. What he did is he met them with other people around so that the matter was dealt with in such a way as to avoid impropriety. You can't, this idea of generally speaking, you're avoiding unchaste company unless you have a specific good work you're doing towards them, in which case you're interacting with them and you have other people around. So this idea of dealing with unchaste company in a guarded way and generally avoiding unchaste company. Lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, and stage plays. Hey, do you think stage plays are closely related to movies? Is it like, can we like make that application? Can we make that jump? Lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays. Lascivious, I have a definition for you, is on page page something, somewhere 12, page 12. Lascivious means, it's under, it's page, point 34, page 12. It comes from a word that means to loosen or to relax in Latin. And so the idea of loose or wanton, lewd, lustful, Okay, that idea. So, songs, books, pictures, dancings, or stage plays that are loose, that rather than seeking to deal with things so as to preserve the dignity of persons, there is a, a looseness, a speaking in lewd ways, a presenting of sexual sin in a way that is positive or alluring, those are the kinds of things that we ought to avoid, which basically means turn off the radio, and as far as books go, you have to be careful. As far as pictures go, or other visual arts, right? Things that are arts that have nakedness, things that have displays of immodesty in them, they ought to be avoided, removed. So these are the kinds of things that if we're watching over our eyes and we're guarding, we would, we would remove. So all of the provocations or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. This is the seriousness of the Seventh Commandment. Our culture is being destroyed by being given over to the breach of the Seventh Commandment. It is the easiest sort of bribe that Satan can offer. It is the type of thing that a culture that's being given over to being less and less rational is prone to. Romans, in the beginning of it, warns about as we 
have idolatry of the mind. It manifests itself more and more into sexual perversion. And so that's what's happening in our culture. And so we need to warn. We need to beware. We need to guard. And we need to not think of ourselves as more mighty than we really are. We must remember that sexual sin destroyed David and Samson. We need to remember that sexual sin destroyed Solomon. Right? Solomon was wiser than any king before him. David was beloved of God. And Samson had physical strength unlike any man. And so these things, we must not play with sexual sin. We must not play with watchfulness over the senses. We must guard and fight hard to protect these things, to protect our daughters and our sons, to protect ourselves and our spouses. We must guard. And we live in a world that is saturated with a playing with sexual sin. Comments, questions, objections from voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney? Um, so, for those of us that uh, like uh, comedy, um, comedians and that sort of thing, um, is that something that is tolerable? Is it okay uh, to to watch uh, comedians or if we get, you know, like you, um, well, is that okay? The question is, 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 is listening to a comedian acceptable? Yes, I think listening to a comedian is acceptable. The problem is most comedians are spewing filth out of their mouths now, most modern comedians. And so I would suggest to you that most of the comedians that you can find commercial material available for are probably things you should not listen to. But I think that there are some that are acceptable, but I also think you, know, you, you have to be careful there. I think that there could be a Christian comedian. Christian comedy looks like this. Christian comedy takes things that are evil and shows them to be absurd as they are. Okay, mockery of evil is very effective. And it's and the, the lies of evil are hilarious and how stupid they are. And so Christian comedy can exist and it should be the most excellent. In movies and stage plays, I mean that that's okay. It's the what kind of it. It's what kind, yeah. And it's, it's difficult to find a movie that's not filled with blasphemy and lewdness and, you know, yeah. Thank you. All right, anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for helping us to consider the importance of the seventh commandment and how it is uh, necessary for us to avoid being corrupt and profane, that it is necessary for the preserving and protecting of true beauty. I ask that you would bless us with wisdom to apply the seventh commandment and to be careful and to remember that there are different things that are more dangerous for us individually and to be careful to think about what are the things that are necessary for us to avoid stumbling versus the things that are objectively obligatory for all of us to avoid to avoid stumbling. Help us to be careful to not be brittle in our relationships, uh, but to be guarded and at the same time to desire to preserve relationship with each other. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.